0: Martinez, and welcome to the neighborhood. Hello from quarantine, everybody. Um, It's been quite a few weeks now, but we're back. Um, I hope everyone is staying safe out there. Um... You know, I'm actually recording by myself right now. I was able to get my audio equipment in, and I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, George actually has been walking me through this, Um, so yeah, we're not together right now. I'm recording remotely from home, and he's going to be editing from home. you know, I've always depended on him for this part, so <laughs> I'm very nervous, so bear with me if this is, like, a really rough episode. I'm doing my best. Um, I've been in quarantine since March 16th. Um, I feel like that's a little bit longer than most people. I lost my job, actually, that week, and then um, I think I went to work, like, once, and it was the same day, which was, like, I think the... 20th, I don't know, um, that our governor, J.B. Pritzker, um, ordered the stay-at-home order, and yeah, I haven't left my house since. Luckily, I live with family, and, um, they're also very protective of me, because I have really bad asthma, so, um, you know, I'm one of those at-risk people, so I've not left my house, and it seriously feels like, like a Like, those summers before you got a job and you had nothing to do, so you would just, like, bum around all day. That's literally what I've been doing. Um, so I'm really excited to finally be sitting here and recording and doing something productive and something I've been excited to do. Um, so yeah, stay, stay with us. Uh, this is our, gonna be our first episode, um, after our Chicagoland episodes. So, um, stick around. My first story outside of the Chicago land, I decided to do Austin, Texas. Now, this is a city i haven 't visited, but it 's definitely on my personal bucket list. Austin has amazing music and art scene, it's a cool place with tons to do, it's a college town, it's definitely a place for younger people, and it's known as a generally safe place to live. Um, According to Wikipedia, the FBI ranked Austin as the number two safest major city in the US for 2012. However, despite this fact, Austin is also known for one of the most notorious unsolved murders of the 90s, the Yoga Shop Murders. I told myself, um, and my producer George when we were in the beginning stages of this podcast that I didn't want to do too many bummers, and then I turned around and did it anyway, starting the whole thing off with Brown's Chicken Massacre, so fuck it, right? I mean, if I can't pick a story because it's too heavy, then what's the point in me doing this, right? Um, this story, every time I hear it on a podcast or read about it... Um, even the research I did on this is daunting. It's one of those stories that once you learn about it, it stays with you. Aside from the brutal nature of the crime, the ages of the victims, we're also talking 342 suspects, 50 false confessions, corrupt behavior by the department, an outraged community, and the false imprisonment of innocent men. This is a case that shook the city of Austin forever. It was so violent and horrendous, it made the people fear for their safety in the usually quiet town. It is known as the crime where Austin lost its innocence. To this day, the case is unsolved, but remains a high priority with the Austin PD and continues to get media coverage in Texas. cite my sources first before getting into the story. The first one is the book written by Beverly Lowry called Who Killed These Girls. This was a very detailed and insightful book. Um, I got it on my Kindle. I'm still working on it, but um, it's a really, really good read. Um, Next was KVUE um, or KVU. It's a news network in Texas. Um, They offered tons of articles and current updates and videos on the case. News Eat in Austin, um, there was also many archived articles by them. The True Crime Files, a podcast and website, um, they did an amazing job in their research as well. An article um, from 2001 titled Under the Gun by Michael Hall that was published in Texas Monthly. Uh, USA Today came through as well with a recent development, and then of course Wikipedia, my best friend. The I Can't Believe It's Yogurt shop at 2949 West Anderson Lane in the northwest neighborhood of Austin was a gathering place for the neighborhood, as it was close to the mall, so people of all ages would come in after shopping or going to the movies. Governor Ann Richard frequented there as well. At 11.47 p.m. on December 6, 1991, a patrolling officer noticed smoke coming from the yogurt shop. He pulled around the back entrance and saw the flames blazing out of the door. Immediately, he reported to dispatchers and firefighters were on the scene in six minutes, which is a little longer response time because they went to the wrong location first. Initially assuming this was a kitchen fire, the firemen burst in with their hoses extinguishing the fire when, once they were finished and checked their surroundings, they saw a foot in the back room, and then they ran into a horrific and brutal scene. Three bodies clustered in the corner, two of them stacked on top of each other, legs spread-eagled. They were burned and charred beyond recognition. They couldn't even tell their gender or race, but knew immediately they were kids. They were naked, bound, and gagged by their own clothes. A few minutes later, they came across another body, also bound and gagged. These were the bodies of Amy Ayers, Eliza Thomas, Jennifer Harbison, and Sarah Harbison, but they wouldn't know that until they were identified using dental records. All four of them had bullet wounds to the back of the heads. Amy had two bullet wounds. This went from a kitchen fire, to multiple homicide and arson, real quick. By the time the detectives were called onto the scene, there were 16 firemen trampling all over the store in 4 inches of water. Which, if you know anything about crime scenes and forensics, is a nightmare for anyone trying to gather physical evidence. As everything had been washed away, and then the amount of people walking freely about the scene. At the time of the murders, Austin's homicide unit consisted of six detectives, and only one being on duty that night. In 1991, Austin was a small college town with safe streets and a tight-knit community. It was clear that they were inexperienced and in over their heads with a violent crime of this scale, as so many protocols went ignored. Before getting into the evidence and investigation, I want to talk about the victims. These girls were known to be highly intelligent, innocent, and happy girls. They were very involved in their community, church, and after-school programs. Amy Lee Ayers was 13 and was known as a private girl who kept to herself. An eighth grader at Burnett Middle School, was on the yearbook staff, rode horses, wore cowboy hats, loved George Strait, and had dreams of becoming a vet. She was a member of the Junior Future Farmers of America and showed hogs at the Travis County Fair. A true cowgirl, she was known to take her pigs on walks. Eliza Hope Thomas was 17 and an employee at the yogurt shop and was working that night. She is described as popular, friendly, and chatty. She was a senior at Lanier High School and a member of the St. Louis Catholic Church. She enjoyed reading and country dancing, had dreams of becoming a vet and a rancher, was also in Future Farmers of America. She also experienced interest in agricultural mechanics, welding, and engine repair at school. Sarah Louise Harbison was 15 and a freshman at Lanier High School. A JV cheerleader, student council member, she collected rocks and seashells, Also a member of the Future Farmers of America, she raised lambs for the Travis County Livestock Show and Rodeo. I'm thinking this is the same as the county fair, but I'm not totally sure. Jennifer Ann Harbison was 17 and was Sarah's older sister. She was a senior at Lanier High School, attended St. Louis Catholic Church, was very close friends with Eliza, working with her at the yogurt shop at night. She was president of the Future Farmers of America, manager of the drill team, and was on the track team. On the night of the murders, Amy and Sarah were together at North Cross Mall, which was walking distance from the yogurt shop, and had planned for a sleepover with Jennifer and Eliza. Amy and Sarah went to the store to help them close promptly as the store closes at 11 p.m. and get a ride back home. It had been Amy's first outing on her own as her parents were known to be conservative and strict. Given that they were well known and liked, and their ages, the community was devastated. Their mass was held at St. Louis Catholic Church and had an attendance of 1,500 people. The funeral procession was eight miles long. The girls are buried at Capitol Memorial Garden Cemetery. Many people volunteered and mobilized in the efforts to find answers going door to door, cutting up white ribbons to pin them on lapels, car antennas, and wrapping them around trees. On the six-month anniversary, 1,200 people marched on the state capitol with white candles and a banner that read, We Will Not Forget. Because this crime was so brutal and disturbing, the firemen were sworn to secrecy regarding the details of the crime scene. However, they were the first ones to leak the story to the press in the discovery of the bodies, which also led to the eventual sealing of their autopsies to the public by a judge, which eventually was also to foil false confessions and apprehend the guilty. Now, as I already mentioned, that due to the fire and then the water used to extinguish it, a lot of the evidence that could have pointed to the killer was destroyed. The Austin PD was at a disadvantage with little forensic evidence from the jump. The fire was so intense that it melted the steel shelves, aluminum ladder, the steel girder collapsed, and cans of toppings, paint, and cleaning supplies exploded all around the bodies. The department's inexperience in homicide led to the following. Bathrooms weren't dusted for fingerprints, trash bags weren't combed through, The metal shelves and mops that were near the girls' bodies were taken outside and then disappeared, probably taken by trash collectors. For sure, it is known that there was no supervisor, manager, or adult present at the time, which led to questions and concerns about workplace safety, specifically regarding minors. As employees, Eliza and Jennifer were only 17. Although it was a safe area, most would agree that there should have been an adult on duty with them. The girls closing the store was a regular thing and were often instructed to lock the doors 10 minutes prior to closing, even if there were still customers inside. And then at the end of the night, locking up and slipping the key under the door for the manager in the morning. It is believed that the store was already closed at the time of the murders because the front door was locked and firemen had to use a crowbar to get in. Witnesses place all four girls at the store as early as 9.45pm, and were last seen alive as late as 10.47pm. At 11.03pm, the register rang up a no sale, leading the police to believe that someone had entered the store with the intention of robbing the place, and that it went badly. Approximately $540 was missing from the register, however there was a bank bag under the register that wasn't taken autopsy shows that the girls were shot execution style, all having single bullet entry wounds on the backs of their heads in a downward angle, meaning that the killer or killers overpowered them and forced them to kneel. It is also apparent that they were ordered to strip as Jennifer and Eliza's shoes were found in a neat pile next to the back door. Based on the bullets taken from the girls' bodies and the slug and shell casing found on the scene, they were able to determine that the weapon used was a twenty-two caliber gun on all four girls, and a .380 was used on Amy, indicating two or more killers. Amy and Sarah were raped, but they couldn't figure that out for the other two girls due to the severity of the burns. It is believed that Amy either struggled or fought back due to being shot twice and being strangled with a sock wrapped around her neck with a half hitch on the back. Also would indicate why she was found completely separate from the others. The 22 bullet didn't enter her brain, but the second bullet from the 380 entered the left side of her head and exited the right cheek and jawline. The fire was determined to have started in the back room near the back door where the victims were, as the front part of the store had little to no damage. Sarah had an ice cream scoop inserted between her thighs. After the girls were murdered, The killers stacked the girls on top of each other, and the gunmen piled paper plates, cups, napkins, cardboards on top of their bodies, poured lighter fluid on them, started the fire, and then fled through the back door. The owner of the party shop next door claims he didn't hear any commotion, however he did hear some popping noises that could have been the gun, but that the shop was mostly silent. He did, however, notice the smell of smoke, but by the time he checked outside, the officer that alerted the dispatchers was already there. Forensic science was still inadequate in 1991, so they wouldn't figure out the DNA left on Amy, Jennifer, and Eliza until much later. Hair in one fingerprint was also found at the crime scene. A task force is made to investigate the crimes, consisting of Austin PD, ATF, Department of Public Safety, Travis County Sheriff's, DA's Office, and the FBI. It's apparent at this point that this was a sexually charged crime, as opposed to a robbery. It's theorized that perhaps Sarah and Amy were followed from the mall to the store. The FBI came up with a profile of the killers, white men late teens to mid-twenties, one of them had a dominant personality and was the leader. The leader hung out in the area and knew the roads. Was an immature underachiever with a criminal record who angered easily. Sounds incredibly detailed and on the nose. I'm going to come back to that. So this led investigators to narrow their focus on young suspects now this is the 90s so satanic panic is in full swing so they were looking for satanists in the area particularly harassing the club and goth kids who typically hung out in malls many of them were interrogated harassed their homes were searched it was a total mess and a complete waste of time meanwhile 12 billboards have gone up around the city of Austin, donning the girls' photos, with the question on everyone's mind, who killed these girls? In 1992, it offered a reward of $25,000 with information that leads to a conviction. By the end of 1993, after 5,000 leads with no arrests, the reward was raised to $125,000 and has remained that way ever since. Morale was down in the department. It was down before the murders, even, when the head of Vice had just been fired for excessive force, and another officer was fired for drug use. There wasn't much leadership in the department, and now with the pressure of a case that was completely out of their league, with an outraged community breathing down their necks, some of them were willing to cross ethical lines to get results. In March of 1992, detectives begin to suspect a leak within the department because interviewees know too many details that have been withheld from the public. It is then realized that it is linked to Senior Sergeant Hector Polanco. It seemed he had been eliciting false confessions on not just this particular case, but in other cases of his as well, which led to false imprisonment in one case. He is promptly removed as supervisor over the task force and is fired. This also launched an investigation within the department, finding questionable interrogation tactics and a serious lack of training for the homicide investigators. Subsequently, the Austin PD started a training program for its homicide unit. They began taping interrogations and increased staffing as well. Other than following the useless trail of the club kit scene, the investigators also looked deeply into serial killers in the area at the time, which led them to their first legitimate suspect. Texas serial killer Kenneth McDuff suspected of at least 14 murders, was convicted of murdering three teens, two boys and one girl in 1966 in what is now known as the Broomstick Murders, in which the girl was repeatedly raped before her neck was broken with a broomstick. He was sentenced to death for the murders, but his conviction was changed to life in prison in 1972 after the Supreme Court abolished capital punishment. In 1989, he was paroled due to overcrowding. Being a murdering bastard, he of course committed many more killings after his release, so he was arrested again and sent to death row. He was in the area at the time of the yoga shop killing, so he was questioned, and his response to said questioning? Had I done it, I would tell you, because I'd be proud of it. You sick fuck. On the day of his execution, November 17th, 1998, McDuff confessed to the murders. This happens a lot with death row inmates. In their desperation, they blurt out false confessions to try and get a stay of execution, hoping it'll spare their lives for just a little longer. Well, it didn't work for old McDuff. The execution was carried out anyway, and when they tested his hair and fingerprints from the crime scene after the fact, it was not a match. So, just another dead end for the investigation. Until October 6, 1999, eight years after the murders, when police arrest four men. We're going to go back now to eight days after the murders on December 14, 1991. Investigators had received a tip about a 16-year-old boy named Maurice Pierce. He was seen in North Cross Mall with a 22 caliber gun the same night of the murders. He is arrested and questioned by none other than Hector Polanco. Pierce alleges that he was with his friends Forrest Wellborn, Michael James Scott, and Robert Springsteen, and that Wellborn borrowed the gun to carry out the killings. Pierce made a written statement to police, and after questioning the other three boys and testing the gun, fingerprints, and hair, which all came back not a match, they let them all go, realizing that Pierce's story was more than likely fabricated, and that he may have a mental problem, but not before making Pierce wear a wire to try and get a confession out of Wellborn, in which Wellborn revealed nothing the boys are long forgotten until 1999. The task force at this point had long been disbanded, and the case had gone back to the Austin PD, where Detective Paul Johnson takes over as the lead in 1996. Remember when I mentioned that FBI profile was a little too on the nose? That's because it fit Maurice Pierce and his friends perfectly. Paul Johnson focuses all of his energy and resources on the boys, never even consulting past detectives on the case that could have deterred him from doing so and bringing back this lead johnson theorized that the four had planned to rob the yogurt shop while wellborn waited outside and served as lookout pierce scott and springsteen went in but then something went very wrong during the robbery and all four girls were killed on september 9, 1999 michael scott is picked up by the austin pd he is interrogated for 12 hours and then he confesses He is then interrogated again for four consecutive days and is also put on surveillance. On the fifth day, he writes an eight-page confession. On the sixth day, he tells police he's willing to cooperate. At this point, all of the boys are now men between the ages of 23 and 25 and scattered throughout different parts of Texas. Springsteen had actually relocated to Charleston, West Virginia. All men were questioned as well in lengthy interrogations. Well-born and peers don't give in for anything. Springsteen, however, confesses to killing and raping one of the girls. On October 5th, 1999, a judge signs a warrant for the arrest of all four men on four counts of capital murder. The arrests are carried out the next day. Springsteen and his defense attorney prepare to fight his extradition, arguing that he should not be sent to a state with the death penalty and challenging the lack of evidence against him. On October 20, 1999, Texas Governor George W. Bush signs a special warrant to extradite Springsteen and sends it to West Virginia Governor Cecil Underwood. After a hearing on November 18, 1999, the extradition is carried out and Springsteen is put on a plane with an Austin prosecutor, Austin PD, and a Texas Ranger. It seems that Wellborn was the only man that was allowed bail, so he was released to his family on December 10th, 1999. On December 14th, 1999, Springsteen is indicted by a grand jury. Pierce and Scott were indicted on December 28th, 1999. A grand jury fails to indict Forrest Wellborn twice due to lack of evidence and the charges against him were dropped. Before the trials, it comes out that the indictments may be tainted because the prosecution withheld evidence such as the gun that was tested in 1991 was not a match. Paul Johnson knew it for over a year and a half and never disclosed it until the pre-trial hearing. Scott and Springsteen's written confessions each implicate the other and talk of a gun that was thrown over a bridge in Lake Austin. The lake was searched, but they came up empty. Springsteen's trial begins on May 8, 2001. He is found guilty of capital murder on May 30, 2001 and is sentenced to death. Scott's trial begins on August 14, 2002 and is found guilty on September 22, 2002. He is sentenced to 99 years in prison. Pierce never went to trial. He was released on January 30, 2003, for lack of evidence. This was a hard pill for the department to swallow, as he was believed to be the ringleader. Not long after the two men's trials, there were serious concerns raised that they might actually be innocent. War 1, they had no witnesses or physical evidence against them. Also, neither of the men had anything violent on their records, and they both had learning disabilities. Both men came out and said their confessions were coerced. Even Forrest Wildborn came forward, stating the police tried to tell him what to say, and anything he said otherwise was a lie. Springsteen was quoted as saying, I was berated and berated and berated by the police officers until they obtained what it was they wanted to hear. They were not going to allow me to leave, and basically, they broke me down. Their confessions corroborated many details not made public, but were also inconsistent, messy, and didn't match entirely. And then comes the shitstorm. There were 20 hours worth of videotapes from Scott's interrogation, and on it, a detective is holding a gun to his head. The rest of the videos show the detectives yelling and cursing at him for hours. The photo is released by the press, and the department is once again under scrutiny for corrupt behavior and heavy-handedness. The courts found that the men's Sixth Amendment rights had been violated as both men's confessions had been used against the other during their trials, but the lawyers were never given the opportunity to cross examine the accuser. In 2006, Both of the convictions are overturned on the grounds of the men not being given a fair trial and the U.S. Supreme Court refuses to reinstate the conviction in 2007 and were set to go to retrial when finally the DNA that was taken from Amy Ayers' body finally had a profile. It had taken analysts years to extract it. The DNA found on Jennifer was too badly damaged and deemed unusable. They were able to figure out that the DNA was male, and in 2008, the defense lawyers for Scott and Springsteen request the DNA test of them and alternative suspects. There were 70. None were a match. Not a single one. The retrial was put on hold indefinitely, and the men were finally released in 2009, now well into their mid-30s. The families of the victims, the community, and the prosecutors were overcome with defeat and were still convinced that these men were guilty. Travis County District Attorney held a press conference stating she wouldn't retry the case until she knows who the DNA belongs to. Let's talk about the DNA now. There's been a recent development as of earlier this year or late 2019, but the Austin PD has been in a standoff with the FBI for the past three years now. I don't wanna delve too deep into the science of it all because I barely understand it myself, but it seems that this sample is a single strand of DNA called Y-STR. It's shared by a family of men, meaning that they may not find the actual person, but could find someone in their lineage. This is what we call family tree forensics. A lot of genial companies have been cooperating with police on this to solve cold cases and has proved successful. It's how we caught the Golden State Killer and the Boston Strangler. About 60 cold cases have been solved using this method. In 2017, An Austin PD cold case investigator entered the profile into a database operated by the University of Florida's National Center for Forensic Science, and he found a hit. Unfortunately though, the match's information was hidden. See, this person's DNA was part of an anonymous population study conducted by the university and in participation with the FBI, and the FBI won't bunch. According to them, those profiles are not suitable to matching an individual, claiming that thousands of men could share the same profile. Not only that, the FBI frowns upon using genealogy to solve cold cases. That's news to me, and I'm a little offended. It turns out that familial searching is left up to the states where some permit it, and other states like Texas have no laws that prohibit it. Legally, the FBI can provide anonymous data, but it can't be used to trace an individual. The problem with this case specifically that separates from the others is that Austin is specifically relying on the FBI for this information, whereas other times it has come from other sources like genial sites and crime databases. Anyway, the FBI insists that this person's privacy and identity is protected by federal law and that the match is not as significant as investigators hope. Congressman Michael McCall sent a letter to the FBI's lab division calling on officials to release information that may be useful to the investigation, but it seems like they aren't going to back down. What seemed like a huge breakthrough was just another letdown for the victims' families. There is another theory. It's not on the record, or it might be now, I'm not too sure, but it's probable and credible This theory stemmed from Beverly Lowry's book, Who Killed These Girls, and is supported by Scott and Springsteen's defense attorneys, as well as many other lawyers and investigators not connected with the Austin PD. It is believed that when Jennifer locked the doors at 10 minutes to close, that there were still people in the shop, as the key was still in the lock. So the girls were waiting for them to leave so they can finish closing. There were other witnesses at the yogurt shop the night of the murders that weren't called to testify. One of them, the most credible, is former police officer Daryl Croft. Between 9.30 and 10 p.m. on December 6, 1991, Daryl Croft was in the yogurt shop and he noticed a peculiar man in a green army jacket who was telling people to go ahead of him in line it seemed he had been there for a while he asked daryl if he was a cop and daryl said no and he offered daryl to go ahead of him and he said no the man went ahead ordered only a can of pop he paid and then the man went around to the back of the store leaving the pop on the counter Daryl, already uneasy and suspicious, asked Eliza where the man had gone, and she said that she let him go to the bathroom. So he hung around the counter for a few minutes to see if he'd come back, and he didn't. Well, what was found sitting on the counter the night of the murders? An unopened can of Coke. Cyril Croft gave a statement to police about it just two days after the murders, but nothing came of it at the time. An elderly couple was there, closer to closing, and the woman says that the girls were doing their closing duties, and she saw Jennifer lock the door and put up the close sign. She says that there were two men sitting in a booth, acting strangely. It seemed like they weren't getting up to leave anytime soon. She described the men One had lighter hair, maybe like a dirty blonde, is about 5'6", late 20s, early 30s, the other is described as a bigger man. They both wore big coats, one of them had on a green fatigued army jacket and the other a black jacket. The couple left around 10.47pm and the two men were still there. A closer look at the photos that night of the front lobby, all of the tables and booths had been cleaned and the chairs had been stacked over them, as well as the napkin dispensers filled, all except for one booth near the back where the two men presumably sat. The napkin dispenser was empty and there were no chairs on top of it. There was also a rag found on the counter Beverly Lowry's theory is that one of the guys asked for a can of coke while Eliza was wiping down the register. She bent down to get it, and when she stood up, was faced with a gun. It's highly likely that this is what happened, And it's fairly agreed upon that considering the nature and personality of these girls being strong and intelligent compared to the boys who were scraggly and not very bright at the time, it seems the girls would have easily overpowered them. It makes much more sense that the perpetrators were grown men, considering the amount of control they had as well as the crime being too brutal and calculated. It's clear that they were not amateurs. These two men were sadistic, ruthless criminals, as opposed to four teen boys who only had misdemeanors on their records. Unfortunately, they've never been found or identified, and the only link is the DNA. It's been 29 years since the lives of Amy, Sarah, Eliza, and Jennifer were taken, and what's left are puzzle pieces that no one can seem to put together. The scene is still baffling, and there's still so much of what happened in that single hour between when they were last seen alive to when the fire was discovered. What's also left is missteps and shambles of a department heavily and fairly criticized for focusing their all into four teenage boys. To quote Michael Hall from Texas Monthly, the story of the yogurt shop investigation is, in part, about how a police force with a small town mentality found itself confronted with a big time urban crime and tried its best to solve it. But it's also a tale of how political and social brought out or merely confirmed the worst instincts in some officers on a police force that was determined to get convictions. The result? A tragedy with even more victims in a police department reeling from its mistakes. Reeling is a good word, I would say. The city of Austin and families of the victims are all still reeling from the grief and outrage, still banded together in the hopes that some day justice will be brought still in disbelief, still hurting as if they knew them personally. The yogurt shop eventually turned into a nail salon, and a plaque now stands in the parking lot next to an old oak tree memorializing the girls. Employees of the salon often leave gifts and coins on the plaque as an offering to them every day. And every Lunar New Year, they give the girls red envelopes with money as a gift. The families are grateful to them for taking care of the plaque, which is the kind of positivity I needed to hear after all that horrible research. sure to subscribe wherever you're listening. And if it's on Apple, kindly leave us a rate and review. It's a huge help to us and we'd greatly appreciate it. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find our Twitter handle at WTTNP and our Facebook and Instagram can be found with the handle at WTTN Podcast. We'd also love to hear your stories. If you've had a ghostly encounter you'd like to share with us, email us a voice recording at welcome to the neighborhoodpodgmailcom at gmail.com or send it to us through DM. If you'd prefer to type it instead of recording yourself, that's fine too. Tune in next week for a paranormal episode in Austin, Texas. I hope everyone is staying safe. Thanks for stopping by.